0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have gathered us together today to celebrate a mighty work, a work that we will get into as we open up this passage, a work that you did that brought dead people to life. Lord, we have partnered together. You have partnered us together with Jesus. You've done something that we can't fully comprehend. And as we like to say, we'll spend the rest of eternity attempting to as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as your people today, help us to comprehend more fully the love with which you've loved us. Help us comprehend more fully the works that you've prepared beforehand, that we might walk in them, that we might give you all praise and all glory with the short timeframe of life that we have here on earth in preparation for all of eternity with you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So it's not a topic that we typically want to or desire to talk about, but it seems to be one that's constantly put before us, especially right now during the time of the pandemic where it seems like there's uh, death rates posted quite frequently, and that's the topic. The topic is death. It's not, though, the topic we, we want to get into. It's not something we enjoy talking about, but it is going to be front and center for us today because the passage that we're working through deals directly with it. But if you think about it, for most of us, death isn't that far away. It tends to be something we're confronted with. Um, Confronted frequently, yet unpredictably, as we go through this life. And I know for me... It was uh, the, just the fall of 2017, not all that long ago, that I was confronted with a scenario of death when my oldest cousin on my dad's side suddenly passed away. When we found out, or when I found out, it was jarring, and death often is. It's a, it's a jolt to us. It is not something we're expecting, and then all of a sudden we're thrust into the midst of comprehending what this means. It was a tragic death, my cousin's death. It was a sobering one. I was made aware of a phone call that he had made to his mother to tell her how much he loved her just the night before he disappeared, as well as how he had destroyed his few earthly possessions that were remaining in his name. And even before, I knew exactly what had happened. I began to grieve what I anticipated was already lost. And that was his life. And of course, eventually his body was found. And there was no mistaking that what once was a relationship had been terminated. There was no more opportunity to engage with my cousin on this earth. Now... Facing this part of life is challenging. It's, it's raw when we face these types of challenges. Most of you here know this feeling that I'm talking about. Some of you are, are grieving a, the loss of a loved one even now. It happens so frequently. And, it, and if you are, if you are grieving the loss of a loved one, even as we are gathered here together, know that this is a place where you can grieve where you can cry and where you can seek comfort. And as a church, we seek to provide you with that comfort. You're not alone. When we are dealing with these tragedies, so often the question we ask is, why? Why did this have to happen? Why did it have to happen now? The question is, why? And as Christians, we might be able to mentally ascend to, well, it's because there's sin, there's sin in the world, and therefore death came in. Sin separates us from God, and sin is that turning away from God and going in another direction altogether. And we can mentally ascend to that answer, but that's not an emotionally satisfying answer to the question of why did my loved one die? We know this because even if we are able to formulate that thought in our mind, the emotion is still present. The hurt is still there. We still suffer. It's never easy to deal with death. It's never easy to just move on. Even as I was just looking through some emails that were exchanged between Vanessa and I and my aunt and uncle about the loss of my cousin, just the other day, I, all of a sudden, this, this wave of emotion of what it felt like to lose my cousin came back across me. And it's been three years since he passed away. But that emotion is still there. I didn't even see that, that wave of emotion coming, but all of a sudden, it overcame me. Which leads me to another thought I often ponder when on the subject of death. Because even though the memory and the emotion can rush back even years later, the finality of the death doesn't change. So, we can still experience some of that emotion, some of that rawness, that hurt. But we can't go find the person that we're wanting to go see again. We can't engage with them, not here on earth. They're no longer alive. That opportunity that they once had to respond to God's calling in their life has terminated, it's permanent. That time has ended and it's final. When someone we love suddenly dies, we realize our ongoing relationship with them as we had known it dies too. No matter how much we may want them to come back, no matter how fervently we may pray to God to bring about a change, a a miracle, to bring them back from the dead, it doesn't do any good. It is a permanent transition. And in dealing with death and dealing with this, it, it, it opens us up in a way that everyday life just cannot do. When we deal with death, we realize that we are opened up. Our insides feel like they are on our outsides because we are hurting so bad. And the starkness of it all reminds us of our own deadness apart from Christ, our own deadness. In our sins and trespasses, the Bible says we were dead. But, but even when we were made alive with Christ, which we all have been if we have claimed him as Savior, our old self, our dead self seems to grip us from time to time and drag us down these dark and, and, and uh, perverted alleys that we were supposed to be freed from and we still dabble in some of the sin that once held us captive. We wonder and we get caught up in the the lifeless and empty works that were characteristic of our life prior to Christ. Deadness, emptiness. This behavior is devastating to our new life. It devastates our ability to proclaim that we're a new creation. When we get caught up in sin, We are hampered from proclaiming the gospel. And this happens whenever we become comfortable, whenever we become comfortable in acting in ways that are contrary to who God is and who he has made us to be in his son. After all the glorious things that Paul was sharing with the Ephesian church in chapter one, he takes time now in chapter two setting that side just for a moment to take us to this place to talk about death. All those heartful prayers and praises offered up for the believers in the church of Ephesus, it all remains true. But to drive home a point, Paul takes his readers, the Ephesians, and now we get the benefit of going along with them to this place. They were saved, just as we know we are saved. But what Paul is doing is he's taking the recipients of the letter to someone else's, not to someone else's death, but taking them back to their own death. And we get to think about that as well. What was our life like when we were previously dead? Paul comes off of the tremendous high of chapter one to say clearly that. When we remember what we were before, we were dead, that enhances our faith. And that's what we're going to look at first. Our first main section that we're going to cover is Dead in Trespasses and Sins, verses 1 through 3. And we're not going to get very far to begin with because it starts out so abruptly. And you were dead is how Paul begins chapter 2. And you were dead. What do you think when you hear that statement? You were dead. It's a difficult statement to comprehend because even as I was sharing about the death of my cousin and you were probably thinking of a similar death that maybe has recently gripped you or one that is hard to let go, you realize that this is a a tough situation. When someone is dead, they're not simply unresponsive. They have no way of interacting. There's no more there. Here, though, Paul is making this true statement not about someone else that has died a physical death. He's making this statement about the Ephesians. He's making it about believers. He's making it about a church. Therefore, we can rightly say he can be making it about us. It's true for all of us. And you were dead. Paul does go on to add two qualifiers when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and were dead in the sins. Trespasses and sins. We've all trespassed and sinned. Paul covers this at great lengths in Romans, in Romans chapter three, in Romans chapter five. And when we think of trespasses, we think of those missteps that are taken. There's a path that we are supposed to be on, but oftentimes we get off of that path. That is a trespass. We've gone somewhere we're not supposed to be. And in sins, we're dealing with missing the mark. (laughs) Missing the mark, the standard that God has set And I'm confident to say that we've all missed that mark because that mark is the mark of perfection and none of us are perfect. These two qualifies are meant to encompass all types of sin. The sins of omission, the sins of commission. Everything that we could think of that would take us away from God is encompassed in trespasses and sins. And this is what has separated us from God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Continuing on in verse two, it says, in these, in trespasses and sins, you once walked, you once walked. Yes, can you picture that? Dead men and women walking with no life in them. The context is clearly spiritual. It's not meant to be zombies, but it is a spiritual death. And it's meant to be received with seriousness. Uh, Just as serious as we we treat a human death, even more so we're supposed to treat the death of one spiritually. And as we continue on, I hope you'll see that we need to give even more significance to what this death was like and gives us greater value of what life truly is. The idea being presented by Paul, when he says walked in, is a a way of life. It's conduct. It's the way you behave. It's the way you go about your everyday life. When you or I walk in sin and trespasses, we are walking as spiritually dead. Separated from God. Paul, once again, gives a few useful qualifiers. To see what dead walkers walk like, says, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. What does that mean? That means going along with the current world system. The world system that is characteristically opposed to God. A system that shows its clear disdain for God's values. With clear apathy for his morals and mocking those who believe in him, those who believe in his word. This all demonstrates an outright rebellion against God. And this world system is the same system we find ourselves in right now the system that says an abortion clinic can remain open, but a church needs to close. That is the type of world system that we once followed in our dead way. This all makes sense because the world system has a governor following the prince and the power of the air. That is the devil. The prince and the power of the air is the devil, the one who has been opposed to God since before our race rebelled against God, the devil rebelled against God. In verse 2, the devil, when he works, he works with the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is at work, he is influencing. The emphasis here is clearly upon the spiritual realm. But that spiritual realm is having a major influence because that's how God created the world to be, to be not only a physical, but also a spiritual world and there is a battle that is raging on clearly a spiritual arena that we need to be more careful of and not to discount lightly as a christian as i've grown personally i've grown more grateful for my awareness of the spiritual i think early on i wanted more scientific something i could grab a hold of something i could study and and uh, dissect but realizing that there is a bigger world than I can get my mind around. And it is a spiritual world that God has placed us in. And to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to be strengthened in the word of truth, because the devil is continuing to impress on this world that the spiritual isn't that important, that material is more important. And that that in itself is dragging people away from God. The devil is working his plan, and he is using those who have aligned themselves with him to carry out his work. In verse 3, Paul joins into this challenging declaration, saying, among whom we once lived. So this, this world system, this deadness, sins and trespasses being governed by the devil, we once lived. In verse 3, he continues and says, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So just focusing for a moment on the flesh and, and the body and carrying out the desires of the body. This is taking what is normal and good. We all have natural bodies. We all want to be able to eat and drink. We all want to be able to rest and sleep. Uh, for many of us, we're able to enjoy sexual intimacy in the covenant bond of one woman and one man marriage. Those are all good. Those are all natural. That's what God has created us for. But we demonstrate our deadness when the passions of our flesh, when those things that are good are taken beyond where they are meant to go and they become what is dominant. They become what we are con- consumed by and we idolize certain aspects of our, our flesh to, in order to, to meet a need that's beyond what God has granted for us. That's when we demonstrate our deadness. When the passions of our flesh take over our way of being and we walk in those. When they dictate our decisions by consuming our thoughts. In conjunction with the passions of the flesh and the body, there's also this, this emphasis on the mind here. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And as I was looking at this and trying to see how Paul was relating, I, I couldn't help but think of those areas of our mind that tend to be dominated by pride. When, when our mind has something in it that wants to be very um, self-fulfilling, something prideful, we can do a good job of hiding that. It can be remain somewhat internal to the rest of the people around us. Or it can be very overt. Either way, it's still it can be a desire of the mind that is running rampant. And these things together, the body, the flesh, the mind, when we give them over to, to, to governing us, if you will, the way the devil would like it to, verse 3 says, and we were by nature children of wrath. So if we go down this path, the path that Paul is explaining here, would become by nature children of wrath. This is the consequence of such a way of life. Such a life inevitably must face the judgment of God, which is wrath. And please don't hear the word wrath and think that that we um, fall under a vengeful and hateful God. Because this wrath belongs to God, the same God who also works salvation through Jesus. John Stott says, I'll quote him here, this wrath, quote, God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it, End quote. That's wrath. God's personal, righteous, and constant hostility to evil, and his refusal to compromise with it, Instead, he resolves to condemn it. And in this, if you are going down this line, the end of verse three says that you are like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. So there is a division that's been made. But if you find yourself in this this deadness that we've been discussing so far, you are like that other half or more, or however God divides it. I'm not sure what the the number is going to be. He does. Like the rest of mankind, dead in the trespasses and sins, following the devil, walking in all manner of sin, and destined to receive the wrath of God, just like all who are apart from Christ. This was the Ephesian church. This was Paul. This was And could be anybody throughout time except for Jesus himself. Could rightly be said of us. Sadly, we we can behave in our former manner of being. We can act like this. Even as believers, we can go backwards and act like we once were. We can act like we were dead. We can give ourselves over to following the course of the world. For many of us, if, if we've gotten past the age of, uh, I don't know, say 25 or so, when we were younger, we realized, okay, I can control quite a bit in my life. I can control how well I study. I can control how clean my room is. If I have a car, I can make sure it stays full of gas and not run out of gas. I can have a lot of control over a small sphere. But then we get a little older and God blesses us with children. And all of a sudden, There's a lot more going on in life, and that control that once really fed into who we were and and gave us a sense of being, if you will, starts to uh, change. We don't have as much control as we thought, because now instead of things, we're we're in charge of people, living beings that God has created through us, and now we're in charge of them. And we can't be in charge of them the way we were in charge of our room, where we just keep it clean and neat. Children tend to be messy. They do things different than we would do them. And as parents, sometimes we go back to our old dead selves, and we say, I can control them like I once controlled the things that I was entrusted with when I was younger. And we can err in this, parents. We can try to influence our kids more than we ought to. God has made them as individuals. We have to encourage them in how God has made them to be. And that can be tough. That can feel like we're giving up control over our kids. But I believe as parents that we we can do this. We can allow our kids to thrive in who God has made them to be. And to watch them do amazing things. But that's not easy. That feels like we're losing control. And I think we need to lean on one another as we go through this time when that happens. Because we're all going to go about it slightly differently. But we have God's word. We have one another. And we can watch this next generation that's growing up before us do amazing things the way god's designed them to be let's be careful in that not exerting more control than we ought to over these precious children this deadness that we've been talking about in verses one through three it cannot and it should not be any longer who we are we are not supposed to live as we still belong to the devil There is a glorious transformation that has taken place from death to life, and that's what we're going to look at next, from death to life, alive in Christ, verses 4 through 7. And even as I was doing the scripture reading, the beginning, uh, before we got into the the preaching, verse 4 jumps out from the center of our passage today and returns us to that glorious truth I was talking about that we've covered in Ephesians so far. And that we've been observing all through chapter one. And this is how it starts. But God, all this deadness, Paul's been explaining. And then we get to verse four. But God, all that Paul was just stating in verses one through three the deadness, the sin, the trespasses is overcome by two words. But God, But God. It's like the lights have suddenly been thrown on in a dark room and everything has changed. The atmosphere is no longer the same atmosphere that we once were were huddling in in darkness. Light has been cast, but God. The pivot of the passage begins, and God acts through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. God steps into the human dilemma. Of being separated from him. He does so by combining two of his marvelous characteristics, those being mercy and love. God takes his mercy and his love and he, he puts them together. And we read in, in chapter or in verse 4 But God being rich in mercy, he shows his abundance of leniency, his compassion. And we're, we're going to touch on it later, but his leniency is not granted without proper satisfaction. We'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But this mercy, this compassion, it's given from one who has authority to change the circumstances of, of someone who is, is needing their circumstances changed. And that person who has authority over how those circumstances are impacting them can show mercy by changing the circumstances Second, the mercy is coupled together with this powerful statement. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Because of the great love with which he loved us. This is how God in his very essence demonstrates his mercy and his love. His strong affection for us. That's that's the love. His strong affection for us. He loved us for our good. He loved us for our good. And he continues to love us for his glory. We know it is... For our good, because Paul reminds his readers that this all happened. This all happened. His mercy and his love has all happened, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God has demonstrated his love for us when you would think there'd be no point. But God does that because his love is greater than death. And I know the weight of this isn't missing you because We had no intrinsic worth when we were dead, other than a worth that God determined in his mind before the foundations of the world to place upon us. We had no relational attributes, no helpful qualities, nothing but deadness. But God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, began this work. The working of God is done through the mystery of His Son. And as believers, we are formed into this inseparable union with Christ. First and foremost, He allows us to overcome death with Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus died, and He overcame death. And then we get to join with Him. We get to participate with Jesus in the resurrection power. Look at the the second half of verse 5. He's made us alive together with Christ. Made alive together with Christ. Resurrection power of Jesus to conquer the consequences of sin and overcoming death. And God makes our dead and previously separated from Him spirit alive together with Christ. It's all together with Christ. For there is no salvation under... In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whom we must be saved. Every part of who we are is characterized by being together with Christ, the firstborn from the dead. And just as Paul couldn't help but exclaim, by grace you have been saved, here in verse five, meaning your deadness merited no favor, your sins brought nothing of value, your alignment with God's enemy in rebellion only took you farther away from God, by grace you have been saved. By God's unmerited, freely given working of salvation through his perfect son have you been saved. His mercy, church, was granted. His mercy was granted because Jesus paid the price. You and I were to have paid for our sins and trespasses but we couldn't have paid for them the way Jesus did. Our payment would have been an internal damnation. Jesus took those, took the penalty that was rightly for us. He took it to the cross. And in exchange for our unrighteousness, he lavished upon us his righteousness. He was granting, he granted us life. And we are now and forever seen as a treasure by God in Christ. Paul uses another phrase here to further elevate what has already been done. I mean, this is already a glorious upswelling, and and he continues in this divine transaction. We can see it even plainly here in the English. Having just covered resurrection in verse 5, in verse 6, we see two additional workings of Christ that we have been joined in with him. The first is his ascension. So right now we're in Advent, which is like the beginning of Christ working uh, 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 in our lifetime, or if you think when he comes as a, as a baby. But then at the, at the end of his earthly ministry, he has ascension. We're joined with God, not only in, his, or in Jesus, not only in his resurrection, but in his ascension. And in the second, we're also added to his divine and eternal counsel. We get to sit with Jesus in his divine counsel. So look at the first part of verse six. And raise us up with him. This is the ascension of Christ. It's being distinct from the resurrection of Christ. It's not just overcoming the grave. This is now giving us access into the heavenly realm. This is allowing us to go before God. And it's accomplished for us. And this, again, is only together with Christ. We're going to see that everything that we have is because it's together with Christ. We have been inseparably put together with Christ. It's with him. It's through him. With him we have been raised up. And then verse 6 continues, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This shows the intimacy of our relationship with him. Our relationship with God entails being seated with Christ. Seated with Christ. And it's this phrase here again, with. We're with Christ. We're made alive together with Christ. We were raised with Christ. We were seated with Christ. Every part of who we are is to be characterized as being together with Christ. Christ as I have been meditating upon this passage and thinking about these truths and this togetherness this week, and there's this vital necessity of being together with Christ, I couldn't help but think of my son, Jonathan. You see, Jonathan's working really hard on his communication. He's really working at being able to speak and communicate with his words. This is challenging for him. He can't articulate well his desires. He can't articulate well his hurts. But there is a benefit to his communication. Because in order for me to communicate with Jonathan, I have to be with him. I have to be very close to my son Jonathan. I have to get down on his level. I have to really concentrate on what he's saying and work through all my ability to understand my understanding to try to figure out what is it he's he's communicating. I have to be with him. I have to be at at the, the level of understanding where where he can impart to me what he's trying to say. I have to be able to block out distractions so I can focus very closely on what he is trying to communicate. He has to work hard too. He has to overcome frustrations. He has to repeat himself many times. Sometimes, though, even that isn't, doesn't work. And what Jonathan will do is he'll take me by the finger and he'll lead me somewhere because he can't describe it well enough. He has to show me. So he'll take me by the hand, my three-year-old son, so that he can communicate with me what he's trying to, to show me or what he's trying to tell me. He just has to point to it. All of my communication with Jonathan is improved by being right there with him, to being, being together with him. Some of my other kids, we can shout you know, across the house and, and get communication done that way. It doesn't work with Jonathan. I have to be with him. I have to be together with Jonathan. And then I have to ask, is this form of togetherness something I crave in my relationship with Jesus? It obviously enhances my communication with Jonathan. What about you? What about your togetherness with Jesus? Do you devote time to the study of his word so you can understand what he's trying to say? Are you able to block out the tsunami of distractions that seem to be ever-present so that you can focus on prayer and hear the voice of God? Do you submit yourself to the will of God and allow him to lead you around to a place that you didn't really intend to go, but he had a plan for you. Christian, do you see the the beauty of a life lived this way together with Christ? There's a certain abandonment of, of your own person as you're joined together with Christ. You get to do what Christ wants you to do. What a blessing that is. This is what God has done. But God, verse four says, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he first loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did all of this for a purpose, a good purpose, abundantly beneficial to us as the recipients. Verse seven describes it this way. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I don't really understand how more than being with Christ is even possible. I don't really know how that works out. But I recognize that when I I don't keep my focus where he has already internally placed me, I'm prone to wonder. That wondering includes grasping at things that are present here in this world that will not last. But if I stop and consider the lives of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, that has a sobering effect on me. Helps me realize that maybe some of the short-term things I'm grasping at don't have the lasting value that they ought to. You see, because... The result of being, a, being with Christ has been the same throughout these last 2,000 years. If you are with Christ, the result is eternal life. That's the same. But the lives that we live here on earth have varied greatly over these past 2,000 years. Some Christians have basically been imprisoned their whole life with no real freedom to speak of until death comes upon them. And that's when they're set free. Some Christians have had their lives cut short because they proclaimed the gospel. And ironically, the gospel is offensive to those who are ruling over them because it is, it is a, it's a message of peace and hope and forgiveness. But those who are ruling under the authority of the prince of the air are offended by that and have taken their lives from them their earthly lives i bring up these examples because they help us to see what the immeasurable riches being spoken of are they're not earthly in verse 7 it talks about immeasurable riches in the ages that are to come the ages that is to come so it's not earthly possessions that is being spoken of here The miserable riches is not a guarantee of a comfortable life. miserable riches are ours, but they're not going to be fully realized until the coming age. I believe we may catch glimpses of what these riches are. I think we we frequently, as believers, when we're gathered together, get to partake in some of the richness of what it means to be a fellowship that's gathered around Christ. That's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity, is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. So we catch glimpses of this reality. We get get powerful doses of it from time to time. I I think of Stephen, the early church leader in Acts chapter 7. We get a little uh, glimpse into his life. He was a man that was full of the Spirit, and he was doing wonderful things. And yet, his testimony was not appreciated by the, the ruling authorities, by the Jewish religious authorities of the day. And so what did they do? In anger, they took him out and they brutally stoned him to death. And yet the picture we have from scripture is that Jesus was shining down upon him. His face was beaming because he was already seeing those immeasurable riches that were his, even in the face of certain death. These immeasurable riches are for us. And it it may seem that they are hard to grasp. That once we are saved, it'd be better for us just to, to stop life here and have God just beam us straight up into heaven. But that's not how God chose to work. In his sovereignty, he chose to save us and then keep us here so that we could carry out and do things that would help further his kingdom. And these are called good works good works here in our section of Ephesians. Our last section that we're going to work through is created for good works, verses 8 through 10. The first part of verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is that same parenthetical statement that uh, Paul just seemed to, launch out into back in verse five, same statement. He just couldn't contain it, I don't think, earlier. And it's truly good news. It is great news that we have been saved by faith. God has saved you by his good will. That's the grace. Grace has saved you. He has delivered you from your sins and the consequences of judgment. And we know this. Every ounce of who we are, when we we put it into knowing this and believing in it, that's our faith. When we trust in God's grace and his work for us, saved through faith. And God does this in spite of ourselves. The passage reads, and this is not your doing. God saves us, and it's not by our doing. God saves us completely within the power of his own will and ability, and in his time. It's amazing. This is a blessing that we may not fully grasp at times. Remember when I was saying earlier when we, we suffer from the loss of a loved one, someone dies, and all of a sudden we find ourselves on our knees in prayer and in agony, and asking God why it couldn't be different? Well, God chooses to save in a certain way. And that same agony we have for a physical loss Oftentimes, we, we labor in prayer similarly for those who are lost spiritually, don't we? We spend time praying, wanting them to be saved, wanting God to do a work of saving. But he works outside of us. He works in his own power and in his will. So we appeal to that in prayer. But he doesn't put the burden of salvation of others on us. That would be a tremendous burden. It'd be a monumentous burden. It'd it'd be a burden so great that, in fact, only God could do himself. And that is why he sent Jesus, to take that burden, to save, to save through his body, through his blood. Jesus, the perfect man, the son of God, lifted that burden, the burden that was required for salvation. And therefore, we have no work in it. It's our faith. In his completed work, that's what we are completely dependent upon, As his work. It was God's doing. Our salvation is a gift. So it says here, it is a gift of God, gift of God. This is how God works, church. We are to find great comfort in the way God works. Great freedom and great amounts of worship really should burst forth from us as we realize that It's been given to us, all of it, life as a gift. Praise be to God that we have been saved and it's not as a result of works. Not as a result of works allows us to be grounded in humility. We have no room to boast except in the work of Christ. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. All credit is His. All credit is God's. Genesis starts out with, in the beginning. In the beginning. We sang a song earlier that said, Who has held the oceans in His hands? In the beginning. And then here in the passage we're looking at today, verse four, says, but God. God is the very reason we exist. He is rightly called the creator. We get that imagery here even in verse 10, our last verse that we're gonna be looking at. It says, for we are his workmanship. We get this idea that the creator is at work. When a master is at work, A master craftsman there's the telltale signs that he's been doing something the signs of his work are present and we are created in the image of God you have been created in the image of God that was the plan from the beginning and we have been created and we have been saved for a purpose that goes beyond what we can conceive of on our own we're part of a bigger cosmic plan for God's glory Our salvation that's referred to here makes us into a new creation, another creation. It says here we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. This idea comes up again in chapter 4 of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul will go on to say, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm fairly familiar I don't know why it's one of the few verses I can stick in my mind of uh, 2 Corinthians 5:17 if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. So new creation speak in the Bible. Why would God, God bother to make someone who is dead alive? Why would he go to making a new creation? This passage is pointing emphatically at God's glory. And what he wants us to join in with him, his ultimate aim is to bring himself glory. And do you see at the end of verse 10 that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. He prepared good works, just like he he decided before the foundations of the world who was gonna be his. He's also prepared good works that we would walk in them. It's the same idea that we talked about earlier in walking in the ways of the world, that, that behavior and sins and in death. This is a way of life. We are to walk in this. We are to walk in these good works that God has created beforehand for us. And now comes the tough question or questions, the ones that the message has been driving us towards. Are you walking in the way of the Lord? If this is how God has created you, you have to ask the question, well, am I actually walking in this way? Am I characteristically God's? Are you dependent upon Him to guide you in His word and by the Spirit? This is to be our characteristic of our new life in Christ. Or do you find it easier to continue to walk In the ways that are contrary in the in the flesh, do you follow the world system that is contrary to God's kingdom? Because it's easier to relate to; it's what you've always known. You can see it, you can understand it. It's more comfortable, less costly. So you think? Of course, that's a lie. And none of us are going to be able to answer these questions well. There's going to be days where we think we're we're doing well, and other days we realize not doing so well. That's why we need each other. We need encouragement as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need a a constant feeding of God's word and intake. When we boil down our response to these verses, we've looked at today, we have to ask, what are we going to do? do about being made alive. God took us from death to life. What are we going to do about being made alive and being put together with Christ? Everything we have is together with Christ. Are we walking as followers of Christ or are we walking as the rest of mankind? When Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, Right after he talks to them about having new a new self, Colossians 3:10 that that new creation language we've already talked about, he brings it up again. He encourages them as God's chosen ones, as Christ's holy and beloved. As his workmanship as his workmanship for good works to put on the following. So this is a list, a list of things that Paul says you should be known by this. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These attributes help us as believers to bear with one another, to work through our complaints against one another with forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven. Most of all, we are encouraged by the scriptures to put on love, to put on love. The challenge of living this way is only possible For those of us who have been made alive in Christ. If you are dead, if you are dead, you probably can't even comprehend how to begin such a list. It makes no sense. Of course, even as we are made alive in Christ, the putting on is not instantaneous, it doesn't happen all at once. It sure hasn't happened for me all at once. But as I place my faith in Christ, as I walk steadily with him, that change takes place. That sanctification work is being done. And collectively, as we do that as a church body together, we are continuing to grow into the church that God would have us to be, into the, the bride that he wants to welcome in. God is doing that work. And it shows us as we walk in it, the more and more of God's immeasurable riches can be experienced even here and now. It shows us that together with Him, we have a miserable, a miserable richness with Christ. Finally, Church, it's because we as believers, we can come together. And that our lives are made inseparable from Christ. Our lives have become inseparable with Christ and we are to walk accordingly. We've been put together with him for a purpose. We are to walk the way God has designed us to walk. We are to walk in fullness of life together, now and forever. I'm excited to walk with you, brother and sister, into that eternity that God has created for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Ephesians chapter two, and in verses one through 10, Paul very carefully laid out two ways of life. One, in deadness, following Satan, going completely away from you and one that is submitted to the work of Christ, that has done away with our old dead selves and made us alive in Christ and the resurrection power of your son, giving us full access to heaven in him and allowing us to sit forevermore in the presence of you. All of these things worked in and through the precious blood of Christ who has brought us into a place of salvation and life that we should have good works that would be walked out even now. Even in this day, in this hour, that we would walk by faith, trusting that there is a bigger picture than the, the mere breath of life that we have. You are working for your glory. God, we thank you for making us inseparable with Christ through his working. That our salvation is Assured in Christ. Lord, may we encourage each other as a church, as Christians in this current day and hour, we have an opportunity to continue to share the good news of the gospel. Not exactly sure how each of us will be given that opportunity, but it will come. The world is looking for salvation in so many ways, to be saved from death. Lord, you are the way. Help us to proclaim you boldly. Help us to proclaim you clearly. And may those who you have decided to follow you forever hear the call and respond. And may your kingdom grow. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the time we've had together, for the word, and for the working of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.